Psalm 119, 111 tells us, I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I've inherited your testimonies forever. They are the joy of my heart. But what is the value of the Lord's testimonies if they're not kept? What is the worth of God's promises if they're only to be tossed aside on a whim or cast out with blame leveled on faithless man? What is it worth if the Lord says, I will do this, but then retracts that promise and says, no... I've changed my mind. We're going to plan B. This didn't work. You didn't keep your side of the bargain. I'm through with you. If God interacted with man like that, then what would any of his promises be worth? The book is called Night. I don't know if you've heard of Night. By Ellie Weisel, Eliezer Weisel, in 1944... Ellie, who was then a teenager, was taken with his family from their home in the village of Siget, Transylvania. They were taken out, a Jewish family, to the Nazi death camps of Auschwitz and then on to Buchenwald after that. And of his family, Ellie alone survived. And the only reason I believe he survived was he was there six months before the liberation, before he, he was saved. As you read through the book Night, a small book, about 120 pages, you read a story of a young teenager who, by the time the book is concluding, you know would not have survived even days longer than his liberation, the liberation of those who were with him. It's a brutal book to read. Very difficult book. Uh, Frank uh, Jaretsky had it. He handed it to me. He read it um, riding on the ferry over to the San Juans and back. Handed it to me and said, this won't take you long, but it'll take you a long time to process. And I read it over the weekend, and I would highly encourage it. It's on Oprah's book club list, by the way, which for me was the only reason I didn't want to read it. <laughs> but at one point, Ellie lay in an infirmary beside an old man as news of the impending liberation reached their ears. And I want to read you a small passage from the book. He writes, We were quite used to this kind of rumor. It wasn't the first time that false prophets announced to us, Peace in the world! The Red Cross negotiating our liberation or other fables. Often we would believe them. It was like an injection of morphine. Only this time, these prophecies seemed more founded. During the last nights, we had heard the cannons in the distance. My faceless neighbor spoke up. Don't be deluded. Hitler has made it clear that he will annihilate all Jews before the clock strikes 12. And I exploded. What do you care what he said? Would you want us to consider him a prophet? This man's cold eyes stared at me and at last he said wearily, I have more faith in Hitler than in anyone else. He alone has kept his promises, all his promises to the Jewish people. Does God keep his promises? This is the question, my friends, that defines our theology. It defines where you stand in your study of the Scriptures today. It defines your view of Israel today. Whether you believe Israel is a legitimate nation or not is defined by whether or not you believe God keeps His promises. For if you believe He keeps His promises and all His promises, you must believe that Israel are the people of God. That He still has a plan. There's no alternative unless God doesn't keep His promises. If 
all of his words are conditional, is this going to do this all night to me? hope not. If all of his words are conditional, based only on man's ability to respond, then we might as well have faith in Hitler as have faith in God. But this is not the word we've been given. Let me read it again. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Even if we're faithless. The faithful one is always faithful. He never breaks with his promises. He never violates his covenants. Now, in the Bible, we read of five major covenants that God made with Israel. There are other covenants that are made in Scripture, but there are five specific ones that he made with the people of Israel. I want to start tonight, before we get to Revelation 7 and finish off that chapter, looking at some of these covenants. Flip in your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12. It's important that we just see this. We'll quickly run through these. But understand the foundation for God's covenants, what he said, and what it truly means. We spoke of this just briefly last week. We read of the five major covenants that he made of the people of Israel, that only one of them was conditional. The Mosaic Covenant. The only covenant where the Lord said, if you do this, then I will do this. If you act in such a way, if you keep my statutes and my laws, then I will bless you in such a way. The Mosaic Covenant. But there are other covenants, much more powerful, much more long-lasting, that God made that had no condition on man. The condition was only on God. The Abrahamic Covenant is the first one. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and your name will be great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And, I will, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The Abrahamic covenant. Abraham didn't do anything to receive it. Even as it begins, we see the Lord said to Abram. Abram wasn't even seeking out the Lord at the time God came to him and said, I have a plan, Abram. I want you to pick up and move from where you're living in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram did that. He moved on to Haran and then finally on down to the land of Canaan because God said, I have a plan for you. I'm making a covenant with you that I will bless you above all peoples and through you all peoples will be blessed. The Abrahamic covenant. Second covenant also made with Abraham. Genesis 13, verse 14. It's the land covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is first. The second is the land covenant. Verse 14 of Genesis 13. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and its breadth, for I will give it to you. And then Abraham moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. The land covenant. God at this point makes that unconditional covenant to Abraham, and then seals it. He seals it in chapter 15, which we're going to look at next. But one thing that was interesting, when we were in Israel, at one point we went to a place, and I would love to take our group next year to this place. It was called Abraham's Tent. We went to Abraham's Tent. 
and it was literally set up on a hill there in Judea, in, in the Judean hillside. And we went into this tent, we, were, we ate a traditional meal the way it would have been if Abraham had us all into his grand tent to, to have supper. It was wonderful. But after we ate, we were able to walk out onto the edge of the hill and you could see the, the rolling hills of Judea just spread out in every direction. And I thought about this verse. Thought about Abraham standing there in the region of Hebron and looking around and God says, look every which way. Walk all over the land. I'm giving it to you. And in that place where you could see for miles and miles and miles this promise that God made to Abraham. Well, Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1, he seals this covenant. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. And your reward shall be very great, or literally, I am your very great reward. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, a servant. And Abram said, since you, have not, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. And then, behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. So he took him outside and he said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he reckoned, him to it, reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him, and cut them in two, and laid them each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Verse 11, The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abraham, or Abram drove them away. So at this point, all this going on, this is how they cut covenant together. This was a practice in the day, and Abraham understood it. That you would divide, you would take an animal and divide it and walk through the divided pieces. And as you walk through, basically you're saying, as these pieces are, so will you be if you violate this covenant. That's how serious it was. So Abraham divides the pieces, lays them down, then he has to drive the birds of prey away. And it tells us, verse 12, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not yours, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years, exactly the amount of time, by the way, that the children of Israel were in Egypt. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Skip on down to verse 17. It says, It came about when the sun had set. It was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Abraham didn't pass between the pieces. The Lord did. Abraham was still in a deep sleep and a terror. And it says that on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, To your descendants I have given this land. Listen to this. From the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite, Canaanite, Gershonite, Jebusite, flashlight, and on and on it goes. Now, verse 18, from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Gang, it covers an area, if you haven't heard this before, you should note this, it covers an area literally of 300,000 square miles. 
300,000 square miles that God said from here to here this is yours Abraham at the height of Israel's power under King Solomon they only held 30,000 square miles God promised vastly more than what Israel has ever held in their hands at the height of their glory one tenth of what God promised to them I believe and the Bible is clear that they will have the entire 300,000 square miles in that millennial kingdom but it hasn't happened yet here's one promise one covenant God says this will be yours this will happen and it hasn't either God does not keep his promises or he will he will he has yet to keep that one there is more coming so the Abrahamic covenant is the first one the land covenant is the second one Number three, the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel. Flip over there, 2 Samuel, in chapter 7. Second Samuel 7, beginning in verse 1. I'll start reading. If you're not there, just catch up. 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. Now it came about when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, speaking of King David. But the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me the house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel. will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly that's yet to happen. Even from the day that I command judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete, you'll lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. God's talking about Jesus. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne. Actually, sorry, he's talking about Solomon right there. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That throne established then through Jesus. Verse 14, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house... And your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established, how long? Forever. In accordance with all these words to all, and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. This is the Davidic covenant. The Lord declares to David, I'm going to build you a house, David. It's great. You want to build me a house? I appreciate that. I'm building you a house. I am going to develop a line from your seed, David. Your kingdom will go on 
forever from your seed. Realized then ultimately in Jesus Christ. Back Luke chapter 1 verse 30. The angel said to Mary, do not be afraid Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Confirming once again the covenant that was spoken to David way back before. Now it would be true through Jesus. Verse 33 of Luke chapter 1. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Well wait a minute. Jesus was crucified. He never reigned on a throne from Jerusalem did he? Did I miss something in the history of, of Jesus in the life that he lived? Wasn't he crucified at 33? And, and even in faith, absolutely, I believe he was resurrected. But the Bible tells me he ascended. When did he ever reign on that throne? Well, you know the answer. He will. He will. He will reign from the throne in Jerusalem over the house of David and will fulfill this Davidic covenant. But there's one more covenant, which those who tout replacement theology, or British Israelism, which we talked about last week, or even preterism, these folks would usurp this promise, this covenant. It's called the New Covenant. The New Covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And you've probably heard this verse quoted before as a quote, as a quote for the church, for Christians, people of the new covenant, right? Flip in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We ask the question, this new covenant, is this not a promise for the church? The reality is, only by gracious inclusion, for it is first given to Israel. Watch this, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, and we're talking about the Mosaic Covenant, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, nor did I care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with, underline this in your Bibles, with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I'll write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me. From the greatest, from the least, I'm sorry, to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Verse 13, when he said a better covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And we are, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11, we are grafted into that new covenant. But that new covenant, gang, the new covenant is a covenant to the people of Israel. It's the final covenant that God makes to the Israelites to say that you are my people and a day is coming when I will take all the other covenants, especially that Mosaic one that you couldn't keep, 
that he gave us so that we could see it was unkeepable. I'll take that one and set it aside for the better covenant that I will make with the house of Judah and with the house of Israel, the new covenant. God is not through with the Jew. And in Romans 11 again, we learn that Israel itself will be regrafted into the tree. Romans 11.24 says, For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? From the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God, Romans 11.29, are irrevocable. Irrevocable. Now why that little sidetrack? We're studying Revelation, I thought. Why all of a sudden this quick study in covenant? Is it because Frank said during communion that Rick's going to talk about covenant one of these days? No, that was interesting that he mentioned that because I knew we were going to be talking about this tonight. Why the little sidetrack? Because, gang, if God does not keep his promises to Israel, what makes us think he will keep them with us? If he is a God who casts a covenant out there, throws out a promise, just lays it out there, but on a whim can pick it right back up and say, no, 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 I changed my mind, I'm going to give it to this people instead, what makes you think that he's going to keep his promises to you? The reality is that Israel is proof of God's unconditional love. Israel is proof that God keeps his promises. Israel is proof that you and I have a sure foundation in Jesus Christ. And that's part of the reason, gang, why Israel is there in the first place. God provided for, cared for, and gave covenants to these people that there might be a living example that we could look to and understand and learn from. The Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and ultimately, wonderfully, the new covenant. And so the testimonies of God become joy to the heart. Psalm 119, 111, I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Well, last week, go ahead and flip back now to Revelation chapter 7. Last week we looked at two of three major focus groups in this chapter. The first group was those angels, those five angels, four of them holding back the winds of judgment. One rising with the sun and, and, and saying, don't harm anything on the earth. Hold on, wait until the servants of God are sealed. It was those angelic messengers. And then we saw the 144,000 servants who were sealed from the 12 tribes of Israel. And remember, gang, remember that today there are some 48,000 missionaries in the field. 48,000 missionaries, roughly, plus or minus a few, who are in the foreign mission field right now, preaching the gospel, bringing it into the world. And remember this, that at the end of the wrath of the Lamb, the end of Revelation chapter 6, the world will be one-fourth less populated. In that first three and a half years, a quarter, one out of four people in the world will be dead by the end of three and a half years of tribulation. So you have a world that is one-fourth less what it is now. You have 144,000 servants preaching the gospel as compared to 48,000 today. God is not through with the Jew. He's got a massive plan, an evangelization for the tribulation. A way to continue the message going out into the world in a more powerful and a more palatable way even than we see it happening today. And I believe these 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to have a dramatic impact in the world. Jews who are accepting and seeing finally, yes, Yeshua, Yeshua, Mashiach, He is our Savior. He is Messiah. 
The Bible tells us in Matthew 24:14, and it's a verse used often by missionaries, a powerful verse, that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Then the end will come. And so a missionary often will say, this is why it's so critical that we get the gospel message out to the world, because the end can't come until the gospel is out. And I would reply, not so. Not so. Well, maybe the very end can come, but see, there is nothing at this point that has to happen before the rapture of the church. There's nothing that we're waiting for in God's prophetic program for that to happen, for the church to be called home. It will not depend on us, the timing of, of God's return, of Jesus' calling. It doesn't depend on what we're able to do. Does that mean we should not worry about foreign missions? Absolutely not. We continue with every breath we have to pour all of our energy into getting the gospel out to people. That's why we're here. But it doesn't depend on us. God's not waiting for that last person to be saved for the church to be raptured. Because we see during the tribulation something stunning, something amazing. The next group in chapter 7 tonight, the multitude of martyrs. Let's read about them. Verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. Palm branches, by the way, are a symbol of victory, of authority, of having won. And verse 10 says, They cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What does this mean? Why are these people crying out salvation to our God? Because these people are ascribing their salvation to the Lord. This is where our salvation came from. In other words, these are a saved people. These are people who have received salvation and are praising God for it. They're not angels. Angels don't need saving. Angels are already with the Lord. They're not the raptured church, as you'll see momentarily, but they are those who have been saved nonetheless. And this great company causes angels to fall down and worship. Look at verse 11. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might be to our God forever and ever. What is it about this group of people that so excites the angels in heaven and the elders and those around the throne? Boy, these people show up. And they start praising God, salvation to God, and suddenly the whole host of heaven begins to praise and get excited. There's a heavenly hullabaloo going on. What's it for? What is it about these people? Who are they? And that's exactly what one of the elders asked John. Verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? Now we'll come back to who they are in just a second. But side note, a little detour for you. I want you to notice something here that the elder is doing. In fact, what I'd like you to consider for a moment is behaviors of the elders mentioned in Revelation. It's a great example of what anyone who would aspire to spiritual maturity and shepherding and leadership should think about. The behaviors of these elders. Four things to jot down real quickly. Number one, the elders sit in God's presence. 
The elders sit in God's presence. Going back to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 4, tells us around the throne were 24 thrones. Upon the thrones I saw the 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments, and golden crowns were on their head. Wonderful thing about the elders, they were as close to God as they could get. They were right there, seated around the throne. Kind of like the Levites in the camp of Israel. We've talked so much about recently. Sitting right there, encamped, as close to the tabernacle as possible. Those in ministry, those in shepherding, in leadership, wanting to be as close to the Father as they could be. And a true elder, a true shepherd, sits in the presence of the Lord. True elder is not out there, you know, trying to figure out by business tactics or, or understand through the ways of men how to lead a church. A true elder is listening to the Lord, sitting before the Lord, seeking the wisdom of the Lord, sitting in God's presence. Why spiritual leaders always do that. Secondly, the elders seek out the hurting and point them to the Lord. They seek out those who are in pain, those who are hurting, and they point them to the Lord. Revelation chapter 5, verse 4. John says, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lamb that's from the the tribe of Judah. The root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. By the way, a a quick note here. From this elder's behavior, a key to opening doors of evangelism. Spiritual sensitivity. What do you mean by that? Look for opportunities as you're speaking to people, as you're in relationships with people. Look for opportunities to share Jesus based on their needs in their life. Someone might have some kind of a personal tragedy. Great time to begin to share Jesus. Someone may be hurting. Someone may be stressed out. Great time to offer Jesus. Here John is weeping and what the elder wisely does is says, Don't weep. Don't worry. It's okay. Look at Jesus. Look. Here's someone who can answer you. Here's someone who can bless you. Here's someone who has the power to take care of you. So keeping our hearts open to the needs around us and responding with an eye to the Lord. This is elderly behavior, if you will. Third thing, the elders sing a new song. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 tells us they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. In other words, spiritually wise elders never forget their redemption. They never forget that they're saved people. I've seen it happen before. Thankfully, I don't see it here at the bridge. But I've seen it happen where church leaders or people in ministry begin to think more highly of themselves than they should. Begin to consider their position and their authority over other people. And begin to lead from there as opposed to leading from right here. From among. As one who is saved. And I am redeemed with everybody else. And when I, you know, when I stand up on Sundays and I talk about the grace of God, I, I don't talk about it because I want to convince you. I talk about it because I'm convinced. Because I know what God's done in my life. Because I have seen what He's cleaned up and the messes I've made and how He continues to love me and grace me anyway. It's not because I think, oh, grace is good for you people. No, grace is good for me. It's what I need. Well, the elders are singing a new song. They sit in God's presence. They seek out the hurting and show them the Lord. And number four, and we see it right here in verse 13, elders set off spiritual discussions. They ignite spiritual conversation. 
they cause people to think about what's going on. I love this. Again, verse 13, one of the elders answered, saying to me, these are those these who are clothed in white robes. Who are they? Where have they come from? Where have they come from? Interesting word, the word answered. In the New American Standard Bible and the King James Version, they're the only correct renderings that I've found of this verse. The elder isn't asking a question. He's answering. It doesn't say that the elder... Uh, where are we? That he... Um, Asked, saying to me, it wasn't that one of the elders turned to John and asked him a question. No, he's answering something. He's answering a need. He's answering a need even before the question is asked. John hasn't asked who these people are, but the elder wants to ignite spiritual conversation. So the elder answers his question before he asks it. What's going on here? John needed to know who this was. Even if John at that point wasn't ready to ask the question. John may have just been staring there, confused, going... Wow, I mean, and he mentions this, this multitude of people. As a matter of fact, that phrase, the great multitude, it indicates multiplied millions of people. More, more than he could count. He's blown away. He's seeing all these people and they're praising God all of a sudden. Now remember, he's in this vision here. John's watching these things take place and trying to understand them. One of the elders looks over at John. He must have had that look on his face that we so often get. You know, that look is... You know, he doesn't know. His face has a question on it. And so the elder answers him and begins to stir him up spiritually. And that's the key, by the way, to stirring up spiritual discussion in your relationships with other people. Answering even when the question hasn't been asked. You look a little confused. But I'll tell you what, bring someone to church. And like this morning, we're talking about that earthenware pot with the holy water and the dust and the words. And the, I mean, how weird was that? Really cool stuff. But someone may be here for the first time sitting with you and they're hearing that and they're going... I don't, I don't understand. And you nudge them and go, weird, isn't it? You know what this is about? They go, no, what? And you go, I don't know, just listen. <laughs> Stirring it up. Answering when no one is even asking. Now you might say, well, what if people start to think of me as one of those, you know, Jesus freaky, fundamentalist, right-wing religious fanatics? And my answer to you is, They might. <laughs> they might. If every time someone turns around in your life and you're mentioning Jesus, they might eventually start going, you're just really kind of nuts on this religious stuff. Cool down, back off, it's a little bit too much. And if you're worried about this, let me just give you a verse to remember, Proverbs 29:25. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. The fear of man, concern about what someone may think about you, will always cripple your ability to tell the truth. But if the testimonies of God, as we read, are truly a joy to the heart, that joy will put a spring in the step of your witnessing. And you won't worry about it. You're just looking for opportunities, doors, windows that are open into which you can interject spiritual questions. And so the elder asked John, who are these people? I love John's response, verse 14. I said to him, my Lord, you know. <laughs> in other words, huh? I don't know. I don't have a clue. Why are you, you know the answer to that. You're just baiting me here. And I can imagine a smile on the elder's face. John says, beats me. You know the answer. Now watch this. Think about this. Did John recognize the church in chapters 2 and 3? Yes, he did. He did. I mean, he calls the church 19 times in those two chapters. The church this, the church that, the church this, the church in Ephesus, the church in Smyrna. He recognized the church as he's given this vision. He saw the church. 
He knew it was the church. Did John recognize the church in chapters 4 and 5? I would say absolutely. He makes all kinds of indications that the church is present there in heaven. But here, John has no clue who these people are. He doesn't know. He is not aware. He's looking at them, but he does not see the church. That's one clue that this is not the church that's being talked about here. This is a different group of saved people. It goes on to say in verse 14, And the elder said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The Greek verb tense here is literally coming out of. These are the ones, John, who are coming out of the great tribulation. The tribulation you've already seen rolling underfoot as we look down on earth. These things spinning around and, and out of control and all this. The, the, the wrath of the Lamb. The sky opening up. Things falling. Things going bad. People freaking out. He says, John... This mixed multitude of people, this massive group coming up and praising God for salvation are coming out of that. These people are people who are saved during the tribulation. Now in verses 9 through 14, let me just location check here. Where are we in verses 9 through 14? And what we've read so far, where are we located? We're in heaven. We're in heaven. So John, seeing these people, they are coming out of, in process if you will, coming out of, in droves, out of the tribulation. I almost, as I read through that book Night, talked about stuffing hundreds of people into cattle cars, driving them deep into the heart of Germany, freezing, and, and the only food that they had as they were traveling for days upon days literally was the snow that fell into the cars. You see these massive numbers of people being driven into the heart of Germany and the contrast of as I was reading it and just, just experiencing emotionally the contrast of now you've got millions of people coming up, being lifted up, millions of martyrs praising God, not being carted off to death, but received in heaven in life, in life. So who are these people where they're obviously coming out of the great tribulation? They're obviously present in heaven. They're obviously saved by the blood of the Lamb. And think again, consider the angelic response to their arrival in heaven. Back in verses 11 and 12, they begin praising God. Amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might to God. They are so excited. And that's what angels do when people get saved. The Bible tells us, Jesus says in Luke 15, verse 7, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Which means on the day of your salvation, all heaven was busting out. All the angels were going, yes, it happened, praise God, wonderful. But now, now it's not just one sinner who's been saved. It's millions and the angels cannot contain themselves. The plan of God unfolding before their eyes is blowing their angelic minds. They are freaking out. They are praising the Lord. And these people, this multitude of martyrs, are those who were lost, really lost, but now are found. Not the church, but people who missed the rapture of the church. People who went into the tribulation and somehow wonderfully they began to hear the message of the gospel. They began to believe and they found themselves, though martyred for it, as we'll see later in Revelation, they found themselves saved. Flip in your Bibles quickly to Acts chapter 2. On the first day of the church, 
the day of Pentecost. You also notice the, the Jewish celebration of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. On that first day, Peter began to preach a fantastic sermon. And he quoted the prophet Joel, ascribing some things to that very day. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. And he's quoting, by the way, just for your notes, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. This is where the quote comes from. Peter says in verse 14, he takes his stand with the eleven, and he raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is, Which, by the way, verse 15 just cracks me up every time I read it. You know, it's almost as if Peter is saying, These men are not drunk, as you suppose, it's only the third hour of the day. If we're going to be drunk, it would be like, you know, this evening. But it's not. So we're not drunk. You know, he's still getting his feet wet as a preacher. You know, I'll never forget one time when I was first in youth ministry and I, I got up to preach a sermon for the whole church and I referred to the juice in communion as wine. And boy, did I get, did I get it for that afterwards. An older guy in the church, this is a very conservative church, who didn't believe in drinking of any kind. And this man came up to me afterwards and said, Sonny, that's grape juice, it's not wine. Excuse me. Pardon so I think Peter's still learning a little bit here, but he, he lays it out. He says, we're not drunk. Verse 16, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young, men's, your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. He goes on and says, even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Verse 19, now watch this, there's a, there's a sudden distinction here in what he's saying. So far, everything Peter is quoting from Joel here is happening on Pentecost. The prophesying, the speaking in tongues, the spirit poured out on mankind. This is the opening day of all that occurring. But 19, it changes. He says, and I will grant wonders in the sky above. And signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But there's a problem, Peter. You're quoting Joel. You're quoting this end times prophecy. And if we were sitting there listening to Peter, we might be, you know, uh, might take the occasion of looking up. Well, the moon's not turned to blood. It's not, the sun isn't now darkness. These things that he's talking about are not happening. What's going on here? This is what I would call, for lack of a better phrase, a slip prophecy. That part of it did happen at the inauguration day of the church. It began, the Spirit was poured out. It, he began, God began to pour out His Spirit on mankind in a way He never had done before with that first century church, with those first apostles and then the first 3,000 people who were saved on that very day. But there is part of this prophecy which will only be fulfilled at the end when the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And listen again to verse 21. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Even if that means it's during the tribulation. 
even if the time of God's wonderful grace in the rapture has passed, has gone on, the church has pulled out, even so, as long as there is life on this earth, God is saying, if you call on my name, you will be saved. And when will these tribulation saints call on the name of the Lord? After the great and awesome day of the Lord had begun. The day of the Lord will begin with that beginning of the tribulation. These people are those who are saved during the tribulation and pulled out of the tribulation. Now recall Jesus' words in Matthew 24:14. Again, he says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And that tells me, gang, we have a job to do. If you have a friend, a family member, anyone that you're close to or even know that doesn't know Jesus, you keep telling them. You keep proclaiming. You keep preaching it. You don't stop now. And you may say, yeah, but they're not listening. Maybe not. And maybe they will not listen. And maybe they will completely miss the rapture. But if you can fill them with enough gospel now, it may serve them later. God forbid that anybody would have to go through the tribulation. But because of the hardness of man's heart, we know people will. And so we have opportunity even now to be pouring out the gospel and praying for and hoping that if someone is not in faith in Jesus when the rapture happens, they still will have heard enough gospel that they will choose the Lord after the fact. And maybe if you talk enough about it, there will be someone who recognizes on the day of the rapture that that's exactly what happened and they didn't take the time to believe, but right then, right in that moment, they fall on their knees and they come to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord, they will be saved. They will be saved. Isaiah 55.11 says that God promises His Word will not come back to Him empty. His Word is powerful, beyond any power that we as human beings have. If we will just speak His Word... Which is why, as I said this morning, it's so important that we study His Word. That we know it. But if we'll just speak His Word, it does something we can't even do in our lives. It will accomplish a purpose. What's that? The salvation of souls. Salvation of souls. That phrase in verse 9, multiplied millions which no one could count. It appears that these martyrs will be party to the greatest evangelistic campaign in all of history. In fact, and this is interesting, J. Vernon McGee puts it this way. He says, the 144,000 witnesses in the Great Tribulation are going to do in seven years what the church up to the present has not done in 2,000 years. That's how tense and how intense a soul harvest this will be. There will be multiplied millions saved literally out of the Tribulation. So, why not just wait for it? And you may even have someone say that to you. Hey, if everything you're telling me about this revelation stuff, this end time, scary, last day stuff, if it's all true, I'm just going to hang out and wait for it. And if it happens like you say it's going to happen, then I'll believe in Jesus. Why not just put off till tomorrow what you know, you're asking me to do today? I can wait. A couple of reasons why not. Number one is death. It will cost them their lives. It will in a brutal way. We'll see this in Revelation 13. As Antichrist begins to pour out his wrath. As he begins to seek out the annihilation of anyone who claims Jesus. A comparison can be made easily to Hitler. Who promised at the twelfth hour. If his armies failed. He promised moment, instantaneously the annihilation of all the Jews. That word was well known in the concentration camps. Even if your rescue comes at the last moment, all guns will be turned on you and you'll be wiped out in a split second. Well, that was one promise, gang, Hitler was not able to keep to the Jewish people. 
And why is that? Because God always keeps a remnant. God always has protected the people of Israel. But if someone waits until after the rapture, guaranteed it will cost them their lives to believe in Jesus. Death. The other thing is delusion. The Bible is very clear. Second Thessalonians, in fact, let me read it to you. An interesting verse in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us the following. Speaking of Antichrist, say his coming, verse 9, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, his coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all powers and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So as to be saved when? Before. Before the tribulation. For this reason, verse 11, and this is concerning, for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. What is this saying? It's saying that during the tribulation not only is death a factor for someone who would put it off, but delusion is a factor. That God literally will make it more difficult for those who have rejected the, tr- the truth before the tribulation begins, enter into the tribulation, God will make it difficult for them to believe. Why would he do that? Wait a minute, doesn't that run counter to grace? Again, God is just cementing what people have decided ahead of time. Now, there's still a great soul harvest, and this is not about speaking, this is not talking about those people who are undecided. It's talking about those who have said, I reject that there's a God. I will not believe in Jesus. I don't want that church stuff. I want it as far away from me as possible. And God is respecting that decision. And so, for a person in that position, there will even be a delusion. And if you think it's hard to believe now, it will be much harder to believe then when the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is not present in the world in the church, pulled out with, with those believers who have been taken out, it will be a completely different ball game at that time. And if you're not willing to live for Christ in these days, how can you be sure you're willing to die for Christ in those days? Beyond the cost of death and the threat of delusion, it looks biblically as though it will cost them something else as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14 tells us, If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. But if any man's work is burned up, He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, but Paul says, yet as through fire. As through fire. You see, these tribulation saints may stand, but they're not the church. They have a different position in heaven. They are not the bride of Christ. What Paul indicates in 1 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15, and in that passage, he indicates different gifts for different people. Literally. Salvation for everyone who believes in Jesus, but different gifts based on the life that we live. Why would I really want to pour my life out and live for Jesus? Because there is a gifting that will happen. Jesus says, hey, I'm coming quickly and my gift is with me to reward those according to what they've done. Which explains that whole question. Well, wait a minute. If Jesus is recording us, uh, rewarding us according to what we've done, then doesn't that mean we have to do things to earn our salvation? No. No, grace earns you your salvation. But you can earn gifts. There are different gifts, the Bible indicates, as we come into heaven. So what's the difference between the tribulation saints, those who come to faith in the tribulation, and the church, the bride of Christ? Real quickly, the comparison. The tribulation saints 
saints, they stand before the throne. Verse 15 tells us, For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. They stand before the throne. Well, the church, listen to this, sits on the throne with Jesus. What? Revelation 3.21, Jesus said, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. Can you process that for a moment? He who overcomes gets to sit with me on the throne. I'll scooch over and make a little room for you. When I was a kid, my dad had a big armchair, big overstuffed leather armchair. And there was just enough room in it for my dad, his great big body, and my little skinny body to squeeze right in there beside him against that puffy arm. And I could sit there with dad in the chair. Same thing. Jesus is saying, if you overcome, speaking of the church, I will grant to you a special position. You can sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So tribulation saints, they serve, they're standing before the throne. The church is sitting with Jesus on the throne, indicating a level of authority that is different there. Tribulation saints were told in verse 15 again, serve him day and night. Serve him day and night. The church, and I'm not, gang, this is not me making this up. These are, this is what the scriptures tell us. The church reigns with him. Reigns with him. Tribulation saints serve him, and it's wonderful. Boy, I would rather serve Jesus in heaven than be anywhere else. But tribulation saints are, are, are serving him while the church is offered opportunity to reign with him. Revelation 1.6 He's made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Revelation 5.10 He has made us unto our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign with him. We will reign with him. Tribulation saints are those who are coming out of the tribulation. Verse 14 told us the church is kept out of the tribulation. Very different perspective. Revelation 3.10 Jesus said, Because you keep the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour that's about to come upon the whole world. And Luke 21, verse 36, a favorite verse of mine, But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And some people call the rapture escapism. Oh, you're just one of those escapists. You're one of those who you just want to believe in the rapture so you can scurry out of here and miss all the tough stuff. That's you, an escapist. And I would say, you bet I am. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the point. Does anybody really want to go through the tribulation? There are a couple of those nutcases, you know, who think, yeah, we're going to strap ourselves on with a spiritual armor. We're going to fight for God. No, you're going to be running scared into the hills and crying rocks, fall on us. You don't want to be here. You want to escape. And Jesus says, pray that you have that strength. Pray that you're among those who get to escape. If you believe in Christ today, before the witness of the 144,000, before all the tangible, visible witnesses of God in the tribulation, which again we'll see as our study continues, you are especially blessed. You remember what Jesus said to Thomas? Thomas sees him for the first time after the resurrection. Thomas, who was doubting, who would not believe in him, looks at Jesus, falls down, cries out in those wonderful words, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to Thomas, John 20, 29, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. And it's you. And that's your faith. You didn't see this happen. You didn't watch Jesus crucified. You didn't see Him after the resurrection. You didn't watch Him ascend into heaven, as did the apostles. We are of those people who will not see, 
the types of things that will be seen during the tribulation. There's holy stuff going on in the tribulation. Not just the 144,000 Jews. We're going to see two witnesses show up in Jerusalem and begin to preach the word and declare and prophesy like Moses and Elijah of old. We're going to see an angel flying in the heavens above calling out, Repent! Turn to the Lord! An angel! When was the last time you saw an angel fly by overhead? We don't see those things today, but we believe without seeing and Jesus says, oh, I've got a special blessing for you. Want to know what it is? Check this out. Luke chapter 12, verse 37. Jesus says, blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. This is only believable game because Jesus himself declares it that the groom will serve the bride. And I know what you're thinking. It's what I'm thinking. As I read this verse, I think, I I don't want Jesus to serve me. I want to serve him. I just want to be there. I want to be, sir, I want to wash his feet. I'm Peter all over. I don't want to, don't wash. What are you doing, Lord? No, this isn't right. I should be washing your feet. And Jesus in John 13 said, hey, Peter. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Peter thinks about it real quickly. It doesn't take long to get to the center of that pea brain of his. And he says, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head. Wash all of me. I want it all. And Jesus goes, settle down, Peter. You don't need it all. You're clean. I've made you clean. Let me just wash your feet. And he's going to do that. Well, I don't know about foot washing, but he indicates that the bride will be served by the groom. That Jesus is going to serve the church I don't even know what that's going to look like but I promise you we will be overwhelmed there are different categories of people in heaven there's the bride of Christ the raptured church who has believed without seeing with faith in God's grace we trust you Lord we know this is true and we know we're going to be there and we're longing for you there are the tribulation saints Those who will be in heaven, who will be coming out of the tribulation. Remember we saw them also back in Revelation chapter 6, where it says that they were crying out from under the throne. How long do we have to wait? How long will people be martyred in the way that we are? And God says, hang in there. These are those who are coming out of the tribulation, those tribulation saints. And finally, the Jewish believers, the Jewish believers who are going to be saved through God's covenant with them when they come to faith in Jesus Christ. It will happen during the tribulation Matthew 11 11 Jesus says truly I say to you this is interesting among those born of women there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is I want you to process this he says among those born of women there has never been anyone greater than John the Baptist Jesus speaks these words all along about you know, AD 30, 32 somewhere in there there's never been anyone greater than John the Baptist a Jewish person might hear that and go what about Moses? Abraham, Elijah Elisha who had a double portion of Elijah's power what about some of these men? And Jesus would say no There are great people among God's people, but there is none greater than John the Baptist. And yet, he says, the least in the kingdom is even greater than John. You know what that means? That means you, Stacy, are greater than John the Baptist. Yeah, I know. Spencer, can you get your arms around that one? 
that you're greater than John the Baptist? How can this be? Process this with me. John the Baptist, gang, was the last Old Testament prophet. He was the last prophet of the Mosaic Age, if you will. He was the last prophet of that dispensation. He died before Jesus was crucified, before the New Age came in, before the Church Age. He belongs to that group. That great group of prophets that came prior to Jesus. The greatest of the old covenant believers. But Christians today are in a different category than John. Again, we'll see this more as we get closer to the end of Revelation. But for those who would say, I'll just wait and see how everything plays out. Just understand, if you do make it, it'll probably kill you. It'll cost you beyond death. And again, if I have my choice, I would rather be at the head table of the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's where I'd like to be. I know it might sound a little selfish, a little presumptuous, but that's where I want to be. But you are called greater than John the Baptist because, because you came to faith in Jesus without sin. There is nothing physically, tangibly. Oh, I know you've experienced God. I know that we've experienced, some of us in our lives, specific, tangible, physical healing. I know we've seen God do the miraculous, but you have not seen Him work as He did with the people of Israel. When was the last time you walked through a parted sea? When was the last time you were led by a pillar of fire? When was the last time, again, you saw the angel flying in the sky or heard the prophets crying out from Jerusalem? You haven't experienced those things, but you have faith because you have not seen. You have faith in God's grace and you are going to be blessed. Now, take a deep breath. We're almost done. I have one more thing to share with you tonight. And it's awesome enough to silence the heavens. It tells us, let me finish out. I don't know if I finished these last few verses. Verse 16, they will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. And I want to just interject this. Remember who John was writing to. A severely persecuted church. A group of people in that day who were under the gun horribly. And John was saying, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. As bad as it may seem, it's going to be okay. Well, verse 1 of chapter 8 tells us the following. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal. So finally, we get to the end of the six seals, or the seven seals. He breaks the seventh one, and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, this is interesting to me. The silence that follows the breaking of the seventh seal. It's astounding. There are those who call this silence an unknowable mystery. And yet the Bible tells us exactly what's going on. We don't have to be uninformed or, you know, curious about this mystery. Remember now, chapter 7 began itself with an eerie dead calm on the face of the earth. As the 144,000 were sealed and the angels held back those winds of judgment and there was that dead calm. We described it as people coming out of the caves and rocks and mountains looking up going, what's going on here? Everything stopped. What's this peace about? What's this silence? Well now, now, we're up in heaven. And there is a covenant keeping calm before the storm there. Now there's a silence in heaven. A hush so deep that you can't even hear an angel rustling his wings. Verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him 
so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God and out of the angel's hand. The golden altar, by the way, we've talked about, that golden altar in the tabernacle, it's real. This is a real golden altar. This is a heavenly version of that earthly altar of incense, which was a shadowy thing. It wasn't real. I mean, yeah, it was physical and tangible, but it's not the real thing. The real thing is here in heaven, the golden altar in the heavens. But look at what happens here. Prayer and heavenly incense are mixed together and go up like smoke before God. And in that moment, God says, quiet, hush. Interesting, I believe this may be the only time in all eternity when worship in heaven stopped. For half an hour, silence. God shutting down the angels who are still partying over those who are saved. Look, they're still saved. Woo-hoo, amen, praise the Lord. Shh. And they're quiet. Why? Because God is pausing to hear the prayers of His people. To listen to their prayers. I don't want to miss a single thing. Every cry, every ache, every plea, every unanswered prayer, I believe, whispered in moments of tribulation throughout all of history, along with those offered during the tribulation, at the end of history, rise up before the Lord and He says, now's the time. Silence. Every prayer will be heard. Let me give you very quickly four absolutes of prayer. Number one, prayer causes silence in heaven. It's the last thing God does before He begins to pour out His unmitigated wrath upon the earth is He stops to hear all the prayers of His people. And again, John's audience, as they heard this, must have been so encouraged in their first century suffering and crying and pain and martyrdom. You think about the widow whose husband was lit on fire, ignited in Nero's garden. And she understands that all of her weeping and all of her prayers that go up before God will be heard. That there is that moment of silence when the prayers are heard. And what about you? What about all your prayers where you said, Lord, please just take this from me. Lord, please get me through this day. Lord, please restore this relationship. Lord, please make this happen for me. Do you believe that your prayers are heard? Do you realize the immediate and available attention of God in your prayers? I love this. Church historian Hendrik Grubin wrote the following. He said, The distinctive feature of early Christian prayer is the certainty of being heard. Have we lost that? Have we lost that absolute certainty that, man, when I cry out to God, He hears me. That Jesus intercedes for me. That He lifts those prayers up. He defines them. He explains them. He brings them to the Father. That's the second thing, by the way, that our prayers are sweetened by Jesus. Prayer is sweetened by Jesus. Hebrews 7.25 tells us, Therefore, He is able also to save those forever who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. For them, our prayers today, gang, carry a sweet aroma, and it's the aroma of Christ. He sweetens those prayers. This is His current ministry. Our high priest interceding, taking our sloppy and selfish and nearsighted pleas and presenting them like incense before God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 20, Romans 8 verse 26 In the same way the Spirit also helps our weaknesses We don't know how to pray as we should 
But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And did you hear that last line? According to the will of God. If there was any way that I would encourage you to pray, that I seek to pray myself, it is according to the will of God. Now there are those who would disagree with me. There are those who would claim that in prayer, if we have enough faith, we can call down whatever power we want. Now, I believe amazing power can be called down in prayer. That wonderful things happen, that God heals His people. But gang, Jesus, who is our intercessor, prayed this way. Luke 22:42 in Gethsemane, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Luke 23:46 at Calvary on the cross when Jesus cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Gang, if that's how our intercessor prays, according to the will of God, then shouldn't we pray according to the will of God as well? All this doesn't mean that we have to be defeatist. Oh, Lord, if you're not going to heal me, I guess that's okay. No, Father, I desire healing. I desire change here. I desire your help. I need you. But as you will, as you will, according to your will, Father, I think Jesus still prays this way. I believe that He conforms our prayers to His will. Thankfully, because when I pray, my prayers, they don't go straight to God, rude and and rough and selfish and brazen. No, they go through Christ. They're rerouted through Jesus. And when they reach the Lord, they are in accordance with His will. He's interceding for me. And they are sweet and they are a pleasing aroma before the Lord God. And our prayers cause silence in heaven. They're sweetened by Jesus. Number three, our prayer shakes the world. Verse five, the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. That is God's reaction, His response to prayer. It shakes up the world around us. Our prayer goes up and the results come down. And by the way, Romans chapter 12, verse 19 Paul said, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. These flashes of lightning, thunder, and the earthquake that happens. This is God's response to the prayers of the martyrs. This is God now reacting, beginning to to respond, to shake up the world. I am angry about what you have done to my people. I will exact vengeance on this world because of what you have done to those who have clung to me, who have desired to be mine. It's another prophecy of Joel, gang, regarding the day of the Lord and the millennium. Let me read this to you very quickly. We're almost done. Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3 and verse 16 tells us the Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. The Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day, He says, Oh, Judah... The mountains will swip with, will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk. And all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. A spring will go out from the house of the Lord to, the water, to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste. 
Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence, listen to this, because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever. And Jerusalem for all generations, and I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Promise, guarantee, I will avenge the blood of the people of Judah. I will avenge the blood of the martyrs. I will avenge every hurt, every bit of damage, every ounce of persecution poured out on my people. God says, I will avenge. We pray, we cry out to God. The vengeance will come. It's not ours to deal with. It's not ours to mitigate. It's not ours to return toward anyone who would be harsh toward us. It's the Lord's vengeance. He will repay. We open tonight with an excerpt of Ellie Weissel's Chilling Holocaust Memoir, Night. Let me read one more passage to you before we finish. He writes, Never shall I forget that night. The first night in camp that turned my life into one long night seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a silent sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence that deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Never shall I forget those things, even were I condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. This written from the heart of a man who, as a 13-year-old boy, his world was ripped into shreds, turned upside down and poured into the darkness of night. But gang, with respect to horrors like that that I cannot even imagine, the Lord promises even these awful things that he claims he will never forget, the Lord says, yes, you will. He says in Isaiah 65:17, the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But gang, there is one who will not only never forget, he will never forget, he has not forgotten his covenants and his promises. And as Joel prophesied, God will avenge their blood, which he has not yet avenged. Verse 6 of Revelation 8, last verse. Verse 6 reads, And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. I told you this before. That the, uh, each one of the judgments as they end prepare the next set of judgments. There are three sets of judgments you'll see poured out in the tribulation period. The seal judgments. And the last seal broken prepares now the trumpet judgments, which are even worse. And the last trumpet will sound the beginning of the bowl judgments, which will be worse still. Three sets. Each set has seven judgments in it. Seven that will fall on earth. And this last, this last seal um, as it's broken, prepares now the seven trumpets to sound. That's the fourth thing the prayer does. It prepares the angels to sound their trumpet. And this introduces the next series of judgments. And my friends, brace yourselves because it just gets more intense from here on out as we watch how God ahead of time is letting us know what His wrath will look like on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. As far as you and I are concerned, though, keep your eyes on Jesus. 
long for the day and pray that we may escape all these things and stand before the Son of Man. Father, we pray that we may escape. We long to be caught up and pulled out of this place. But Father, with the same breath, we pray salvation for those who don't know Jesus yet. We long for and desire a great multitude of people saved before the tribulation. Saved in this day. Father, we pray that you'll use us as instruments, however you will, to reach people. Father, if it's through our words, use our words. Give us the words of your Spirit. God, if it's through our life example. Father, even if it be through a tragedy or a struggle in our own personal lives, if you can use that to your glory and use that to the drawing of people to Jesus, then we pray your will be done and not our will. Father, bless the study of your word tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.